0: Part two. And we're back from the break. Joining with us, a fellow This Week in Video Game blogging contributor and freelance writer, Ian Miles Chong. Hey. How's it going? Uh, <laughs> hi, Ian. <laughs> hey, hey, buddy. You. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Well I only have one last major event that happened. It was uh, Infinity Ward loses its main people and they move to EA and respawn studios.
1: And yet Black Ops still did well. <laughs> Black
2: Ops did too well unbelievable a call of duty game sold well <laughs> <laughs> well that is that, some breaking news right there
0: well that was being done by Treyarch ahead of time the next Inf- i want to see what happens with the next Infinity war game
2: you know what i thought was interesting okay here's something interesting i read this somewhere where was it um basically that uh i mean the infinity war thing was you know that was a lot of inner publisher studio politics but what I thought was interesting was that Activision changed their tack this year and decided to have all of their studios work on only one game and that, uh, I wish I had remembered where I read this, I think it was at Gama Sutra, but that, Basically Infinity Ward has had to split or not Infinity Ward, sorry, Treyarch has had to split their time between multiple projects in the past. They've always been making a Bond game at the same time as a, a like kind of B-rate Call of Duty that comes out in the off years. But this time around, they dedicated all of their time and all their manpower to Black Ops. And you know, I didn't really like Black Ops, but it well, was it sh- much better. The, than-
0: all the extras, it really shows because of all the yeah. extras they put in, which in my opinion were actually better than the the game.
2: Uh yeah, I agree. Um, the, yeah, they so I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, I'm not personally, like, just don't give a rip about Infinity. I mean, it's it's cool that the guys at Infinity War went and made a new studio, but I also think, like, okay, great. Like, that, that just happens sometimes in business. Yeah. Well, to well, me... One, one
3: of the things... To... Um, on...
1: Sorry. Dennis? Uh, I'm just... This was also the year that we had that red... The, the EA... Not the EA Spouse, but the EA Rock Louse.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, the Rockstar That's... Spouse thing.
0: And the EA Louse. It seems that it's all indicative of, like, I guess
1: they also had Red Dead Redemption. The people who were complaining about the, the people anonymously complaining about that beginning yeah.
3: of the year. Yeah, Rockstar San Diego, I think. And there was that story yeah. just yeah. just the other week about it that seemed to be um, <clears throat> kind of confirming the, the rumors, anyway. From you know a, a person with an actual name. So yeah, it seemed reasonably legit. Concerns and it seems
2: not about. that it's not. That's surprising too i mean when i look at red dead redemption and i look at that game that's an i mean that was i have a lot of complaints about the game itself but like the world that they built i mean god you know like it's like a the amount of work that must have gone into that there's no it doesn't surprise me at all that it was it was impossible even for a you know really talented studio to do it without kind of having a human cost
0: yeah but it would also is of course you have all the the douchebags responding to it that usually whenever like you have a, a company abusing its or mishandling its workers you you get it the word out to the people and you get and you're at least backed up by them this is yeah you the, get a sort that,
3: of a union mentality thing happening
0: but here it's that the the commenters Well, if you don't like it quit <clears throat> they play you shut up you make games for a living and it's yeah well, you
2: know a lot of that and a lot of the toxicity, I think, of, I'm going to probably regret saying this, but a lot of the toxicity of the game discussion world comes from people who want to be doing it themselves. Um, I, I mean, the reason people come after games journalism, journalists is because they want to be games journalists. They think they can do it better. I think the reason that people come after, and not entirely, of course, but a lot of the motivation, and I think a lot of the motivation with that kind of commentary is that people still see making games as something that's just... It's so exactly what they want to do. And if you're getting to do it, you're so lucky. When really, it's, it's just a job that you work really hard yeah. at. And yeah, well, well and every that you do was... It every... and your work conditions suck.
3: Well, and in Kieran Gillen, it's... which well, we... every... he's he's leaving RPS, which we mentioned earlier, that, like, that was one of his farewell points was that if you're an actual game journalist, have some freaking respect about yourself, you know? Like, I mean, you got the job not because you, you know, sucked up to some you're boss, but because, yeah, but because, you know, you are the best of the bunch that was available. So um, this idea that...
2: Well, yeah, right, because theoretically, because you're a good writer.
0: Yeah. And someone else that they talked about the reaction at E3 from all the journalists in the audience. When they see a pre-rendered trailer, they go absolutely nuts. And someone else was saying... Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, have,
2: that was a game... Be, be the, the, Those are great columns. Yet yeah, you though.
0: like games so much... Be the objective observer. Let the audience yeah. be the ones who hyped up and excited you. You like games so much that you'll sacrifice that excitement yourself to report it to everyone else. And that yeah. was just – it was such an Alec read that got trashed as soon as it was written.
2: Well, you know, it was. It got it's trashed, but I don't, about, I don't know. I mean – oh, go ahead, Ian.
4: That's the sad thing about, you know, their industry is like no matter what you say, somebody's going to trash you, be it on, uh, on dig or Reddit or, you know, on your blog itself. Somebody's going to say that, hey, you know, you're a game journalist. Why aren't you excited about this game? Or if you're too excited, you know, people be like, I'm supposed to be objective.
2: And you're and being paid
4: off. You're being paid off. It's it's always about how you're being paid off and how, you know, game journalism are useless. And it's like... Yeah, everybody's got their own opinion. Like, I mean, you take that game journalist guy on, on Twitter, you know, sometimes he will, I mean, he's got a point sometimes that game journalists are sucking the balls of publishers, <laughs> but other times <laughs> it's like he, he'll be pointing out stuff that. Regular journalists will be doing like doing previews, and you know, sometimes he sounds like he's against it, but
3: yeah, I know what you're saying. He's a sort of it's it's a tough line to walk, like whether he's yeah, and he doesn't always do it super successfully, I think. Yeah, that that line between legitimate critique of actual compromised. Objectivity and just general mm-hmm. routine, lazy journalism, and and that's another thing from um, Kieran Gillen that he's mentioned before is game journalists just they're like everyone else they're generally rather than you know, being nefarious or horrible in their writing, usually they're just being lazy, which when you look at it that way, you know, you kind of, I don't know, I I don't care as much about, you know, the problems they have, the issues they have. It's just just a thing, you know, you gotta deal with it. But the
0: thing is, it's also give the audience what they want and someone, when someone like Leigh Alexander does an investigative piece of journalism, everyone says, why the hell are you doing this? Why are you putting too much effort into this? Why are you exposing these things I don't want to think about? Well, you not know,
3: everyone think, says that, though.
2: Exactly. Like, I think that that's like a, a a really broad statement. I mean, everyone says that. Okay, like some vocal jackasses say that. With Lee Alexander, I mean, Lee does really good work. A whole ton of people read her work. I'm one of them, and don't I don't get in the comments and say anything. I just read it, and I'm like, yeah, thanks, absolutely. Lee. That was a piece. The song you know, like, you I, I don't know. Like, I think that I think it's really easy to get caught up in commenters on the Internet, but I think that that's, that's misguided. <laughs> I mean, I,
0: Someone honestly, is wrong like, on has, the Internet. I must I fix <laughs> it.
2: Now, now (laughs) there's something about comments right and i've noticed uh, some of you guys have been talking about this and i've thought about it too like writing for kill screen for example like i just had a piece go up for kill screen there's no comments there and that's great it's really cool absolutely go up where it's just an essay i wrote and here it is read it cool if you like it maybe let me know or whatever if you don't like it cool don't like it i don't care like it's nice not having that But there's also value in having comments. It's just not the value that we, I think it's really dangerous to ascribe too much value to a comment section. A comment section isn't any way to uh, to get, to gauge the reaction of the world to any given piece of writing. I think a comment section is a place for people to communicate. And that's valuable. Like, I think that when, you know, when somebody says something like on Gamer Melodica, when we get a comment from someone we don't know. That maybe doesn't agree with us or does agree or has a separate thought it's cool it's like a person is speaking and they they want to be heard and they want to have a conversation yeah and then you respond to them and it's a whole separate thing from the post and it's cool it's like the post can have a new life that way but it isn't like a really a way to gauge like how the world is reacting to things like i think that the like toxicity that some of Lee Alexander's pieces um, can can bring out of people has nothing to do with her work. Like, I think it has everything to do with these specific people who are reacting in that way. And I really think that, like, to say everybody says this, everyone says that... Like, I think a lot of times we'll say, man, look at this great piece at GamePro. GamePro, like, that was that no cheering. I think it was A.J. Glasser, but I might be wrong, who wrote that piece. Right. No, cheering, no cheering in the press, but it was a great piece. And they wrote the editor of, of Gay Gamer, Dennis, your editor. What's his name?
1: Matt Greenberg?
2: Yeah, he just wrote a column for GamePro. It was about inclusivity and in GDC, oh, the right.
1: IGDA. It, yeah. it was really cool. It was a cool
2: and he got that published and I remember seeing like it's really easy to look at that and say well here's this great piece and then the comments suck and it's like well okay sure like there's a lot of people who suck and like want to write crappy things but the fact of the matter remains everyone read this piece I mean it was a great piece you know any of these op-ed pieces are really good and the fact that the comments don't you know they reflect a toxic aspect of gamer culture isn't the whole story it's pretty far from the whole story I think it's like really important to keep that in mind yeah absolutely
0: I know. I just imagine in my head, like someone thinks a very thoughtful piece. They don't think too often, and they say, "I don't know what to think about this. I'll see what other people say." And then the toxicity spreads to someone who.
2: Yeah, I don't know though. I feel like that's that's so hypothetical. I've seen it happen. People really like you've seen someone read a piece and then say and then. You know, well, they them. don't,
0: well, they don't know what to think about it. So they get, so they go
2: to see what well, do, that's other... on them. I mean, if someone yeah. reads something and doesn't know what to think, then okay, well, you don't know what to think, learn how to think like, okay, fine. But like, yeah. if the piece was well-written, it'll make them think something. I mean, like, yeah. you know, Lee Alexander's pieces make people think things. They don't read that piece and think, oh, I don't know what to think. I'll see what, you know, Joe Schmo anonymous commenter says. Like, I don't buy that at all. I don't think that that's.
3: So, so Kurt. I wanted to ask you, yes. like, particularly about your point that comment threads are about communicating. In 2010, when everybody has a Twitter account, when everybody has a Facebook account, do you still see the comment thread as having the same worth as like a place to communicate? Because that's, that's the reason that I don't have comments. You know, all the reasons you laid out there, just because it's great not to have to worry about them. And it's also great because you don't have to moderate
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I guess I think, right, I think that comment threads are a little different than Twitter because of what you said, because of moderation. There's a site that I used to read that I was like just obsessed with for like the whole first half of the 2000s uh, called Television Without Pity. And it's um, this awesome site where they recap TV shows and they have these great writers. So it's like more entertaining than the TV shows themselves. (laughs) And And the comment, they have a whole forum. And they are hardcore about moderation. They—I've never seen a better moderated comment thread. And people responded, and as a result, there was this great discourse and like great moderation. And everybody there upheld these standards. I mean, it was like you have to have good grammar. Uh, one of the my favorite rules ever is you can never begin a comment with um. So you can't ever <laughs> say um. I'm just saying, you know, because that's so snotty and horrible. You know, I just yeah. I like I hate that. Like, I will never ever begin a comment with um.
0: I've um, never seen that I happen. <laughs>
2: and like so you're banned if you do that uh what i loved about that was that it encouraged conversation in a way that people felt was permanent like a comment thread where they felt safe because they knew there wasn't going to be anybody in there throwing shade and, and being all anonymous there was no anonymous posting you had to have a you know verified account and because of that standard i think it like to do a certain type of discussion that was really valuable where twitter is much more of a free-for-all it's very ephemeral
0: and, too you can't i can't yeah i, I right. couldn't you
2: can't track ben, it The yeah. thing is
0: i can't find what you said last week ben not
3: if i tried yeah yeah, mm-hmm.
2: and someday someone's going to make a Twitter search engine. Maybe they have. That's
3: like yeah, super a powerful. Bit of a and... kind of a thing there.
2: Yeah, but you know, I mean, I, I think there is a difference. Like, I think that, like, a really well moderated, like, on Gamer Melodico, <clears> man, I mean, we've had, like, one jerk ever, like, leave a jerky comment because there's, like, this. And we, you know, we don't get a ton of comments or anything, but everyone that we get is, like, thoughtful and cool, and we respond to, like, every comment.
0: Oh, I'm in the and, same boat with you. I The worst I get is spam, but we're the, we're the small fry.
2: Yeah, like, no one's going to come. Well, and, you know, sure. And and part of what – it's there are two models, you know. You, it takes a lot of work to build a commenting model where people are – where you're moderating and you're, you're really hardcore about it and you have consistency over time. Um, it's much easier to just do, uh, you know, what they do at at IGN or or wherever. And, you know, now at that site, half the comments are spam. So it's just worthless.
0: They've been working on that. They have said they're
2: working on that. (laughs) I'm sure they are. I mean, I I, I think they want people to use their comment threads and I'm sure they're losing hits. But, you know, those guys are so page view oriented that, yeah, you get a lot of comments. um, You let everyone comment, you just get more hits and then your advertisers are happy. But that's not the only way to go. I don't know. I think that it's possible to have really, really good commenting. I've seen it done on a television site, which is like God, people who comment on on television (laughs) on the internet are
0: so So like the fact that there's like
2: these incredibly nuanced conversations going on on like shows you know, like The Bachelor or The Amazing Race, because these people are in there and they're like if you're not doing it right, we're gonna bust you like I I think that's really valuable.
0: I hate to end this but that was gonna be that was gonna be next time's topic. So
2: Oh cool. (laughs) (laughs) You can just use that next time if you want to insert that rant but yeah. anyway that's a yeah oh,
0: that's no, absolutely uh, also the uh, Ben reminded me of this via Twitter that the indie game bingo was actually this year it sort of tapered off recently but yeah that so did that blog start this year did it that was when people first noticed it, and yeah mm. I think it did start or at least the tail end of last year yeah,
2: and that was I, I haven't really. What was that exactly? It was. It like was uh, basically a game. Well,
0: no, games. it was a bingo. It was to make it was make fun of the tropes that were used so much, like mood music or black and white or platformer, and you uh, have yeah, this, just just overdone
3: game, overdone tropes only, in in indie games. That but really but only one game I ever hearing. got bingo. Someone
4: needs to restart that site because I remember reading it in the middle of the year, and it was amusing.
3: <laughs> Then yeah. Yeah, we got to get then in play. touch with the guy and like say, "Dude, come back. Come back and do some more. Or
0: give us the sign in ID, we'll do it." Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> yeah. what was what was, was it useful or was it funny? It was oh, it's, it's funny. It's it's
0: funny. It was a Ben Said it was persuasive criticism. It wasn't essay variant. It was an image and it was persuasive criticism about the game.
4: Yeah, like you you basically got a a bingo chart, nine slots or however many slots? So and 25. Yeah, 25 slots. Yeah. So, you've got 25 slots, and in each of these slots, there's they've got all these different tropes, like a, a character that's um, made of sticks, uh, artwork yeah. <laughs> that's fancy, meaning of life. Black, know, and meaning of life is Black, Black and white.
2: Black and white, yeah.
4: Gentle
3: piano music. music. Gentle piano music gentle piano. was one of them. Yep. Limbo
0: probably would have filled out the whole card. Yeah, probably. Well, you know
2: that, It's funny, I mean, so that's that kind of meta commentary, like a game dev story, that same sort of idea, building a game around talking about what games do.
0: I'm actually surprised yeah. it hadn't been done before. Yeah, it's clever. But no, he... without the without a larger discussion, it itself isn't that useful as commentary, but with a larger discussion about the games it chose, it was it it was its own form of discussion.
2: Well, so yeah. why do you guys think that indie games do use all of those things that they use?
0: Money, time, space they're they're easy to do people know how to do them they know how to design with them and it's a great way and all you think that
2: you think that limbo was easy to make
0: no 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 but like for, for like the pc people do all these basic things because for starting out they're using these trope like the 2d platformer they're People know how to do it. People know how to think in that way so they can easily design one as their first game, even if it's not that great. Black and white because it's easier than colors. Gentle piano music because it isn't copyrighted.
3: Yeah, I think there's a bunch of reasons for it. So like all those reasons that Eric listed. And also because well, you know, I think it
2: was was it um, it was Nels Anderson right wrote a piece about that why are so many indie darlings two D platformers yeah
3: yeah that's right
2: yeah. Was front that was a, yeah that was a great piece and that, um, yeah, and so... yeah it, it was like a language that we all understand that yeah exactly work
3: with. yeah and I mean because a lot of indie games they're not really going to be able to compete on the same bombastic aesthetic level as um, the latest Call of Duty but they can compete on a on a kind of meaningful level because
2: you could really make I wonder if someone's I mean you could make indie movie Bingo you know and be like the soundtrack is yeah. By you know, indie Bear, and yeah. it features a montage with like non sequitur, and it's directed by so and so, and the girl
0: yeah. has yeah. colored hair, yeah. No, I mean, but, but to, to make your point about uh, Limbo is that you know, it's not that it used the tropes it's that it used them well, meaningfully, and then took them all to another level. It didn't it just almost throw subverted them, in
2: them. It. like it like yes. took the platformer tropes. There's this man, there's that puzzle in Limbo where you jump over these pressure plates that kill you, so you touch them and they kill you, and then you jump over them the next time, and then the next time you try to jump over a platformer, it kills you for <laughs> it. And it was like, it was hysterical. I remember Mitch Karpata hated it, and I thought it was so awesome because it was like really sadistic. <laughs> it's like you're going to learn the rule and then we're I'm just going to kill you I'm just like...
0: annoyed that it's going to stay an Xbox exclusive forever
2: oh is it really I didn't that's know that. what they stated yes,
0: the next it's one the next might be
2: multiple ah that's too bad and
0: it's not even a temporary one it's It's perm- It's forever. It's a forever exclusive which, huh. annoy- which annoys me Uh
2: will
1: put funding into it
2: yeah Dennis you and I actually had a really cool conversation about Limbo you had a lot to say about
1: that game oh yeah oh I got to meet them at PAX East and talk with them and meet them again at uh, D C3 it was fun talking to the developers of it.
2: Yeah, they were cool. I remember emailing them about my review and they were like it was like five guys. I mean, I was really like emailing with the guys who made the game. <laughs> like it wasn't was even
0: that review was good. We linked to it.
2: Yeah, I remember that. That was really nice. Thanks.
0: Uh actually on that note, since I got through most of the events, unless anyone can think of any other big things that happened this year. <laughs>
4: I think Peter Molyneux, if I'm pronouncing his name right, he said yesterday or the day before that. Indie games are doomed because companies like Chair Studios, Chair Entertainment, whatever it's called, and you know Epic Games are going to make indie oh, sort of games, and they'll be producing these in large quantities and in such quality that real indie studios won't be able to compete. They'll be putting them at the same price point as real indie games. Huh. I'm not too. So, sure.
0: I, I'm not sure I buy that because yes, they can create Infinity Blade, which is a, a bigger set and a, a much flashier version of it. But then again, it's. It seems to me that it's going to, be this, it's going to be a bigger, better, flashier version, but it's still going to be hollow and that the indies are going to have the, the
1: meaningful market. And yet at the well, same that, time, that, I mean, generally what you see is uh, that game company get dumped into the indie label, yet they're funded by Sony. Yeah,
3: that's yeah, true. I think well, that yeah, that's that, not... that sounded mostly like it was, well, it just sounded like it was coming from a, a uh, mindset that indie is a certain aesthetic. Which I think is, well, I think Indie Gaming Bingo showed that we're reaching rapidly the saturation point for that aesthetic. Yeah, I'm not
2: too I sure agree. about you that. I agree, I kind of think like, two uh, things about it. I mean, first start, the first thing is that we talk about indie, right? And music does this and films do this, where they use the term to mean a type of aesthetic when they don't actually mean independent. That's, yeah, people called that movie Little Miss Sunshine, this indie darling. But really, you know, that was like published by 20th Century Fox or something. It had a lot of money behind it. You you
0: actually bring up a point I want to mention because they do this in the movies where, yes, it was published by it, but it was made independently. And then all these big publishers have an independent arm and they go out and they look for movies that they think – were, are going to be these these darlings, they're going to be the award winners, and they can get them cheap. And that's what so- is what Sony's doing with That Game Company. It's That Game Company, yeah, it's under Sony, but it's it really is indie because it's sort of like that independent arm of a big publisher. The one little section, you're allowed, and Eco and Shadow of the Colossus team is like this too, you're allowed to lose money, just create something great, and all these other studios have to make the money.
2: Right, and, and that's, that's you know, and record labels work that way, and studios work that way. And that's and really, a like, that's, I'd
0: love to see more
1: of. Sure. Yeah, yeah, the other
2: thing that there's a there's a thing with like this you can't fool the people who play these games. I mean, the fact of Minecraft, what made Minecraft so appealing, I think this is just my theory, but what made a lot of what made that game appealing was that it wasn't just that it was made by a dude and you bought it from him through PayPal and you got the game, but it was also that there was no documentation. It had this really steep bar for entry. It was like a rough thing that you kind of made into your own. It was like, they, mm, there was an adventure yeah. even in using it and even because then, it was, there was like more. purely independent. And, um, and I think that that magic, like you kicking you, you can't fake that. I mean like that, I think That's it's a little more
0: happen. than that. I think it's because Minecraft is, you, no one see, can seem quite to describe whatever thing. I think it's because that game has a soul.
2: Oh, sure. I mean, like, there's a lot of things. There is
0: there's some, like, nugget yeah, in there that you feel, that you can and feel if you can't, we can't yet describe it. And you and we can always tell that Flower had that, Eco had that. Even even as flawed as they are, the Fable games have that. You can tell that Monolu Mon- has put something in there. As, even if it doesn't quite work
2: yeah you you feel the hand of the creator and there's i mean there's a lot of things that make minecraft great but i do think that part of the appeal to at least a subset of the people who just rocked out on minecraft like was that we were it's like hacking almost like you feel like you're taking this game and you're figuring it out and you're mastering it and there's this aspect of outside of the game mastery and like that you're really not working within the mainstream AAA framework and like that's appealing
0: I think the greatest thing ever is when I when I realized I could build a, I could build a sky city made out of entirely glass and I thought yeah. and it was just and it just hovers there and you think you're breaking the system no, you're just being very creative. But actually, that brings up a point that we discussed most of the events. But here's a question: what What about the games this year? What were the games that you still remember or can still still think about or still affect you in that way from this year? I don't
3: even know what my most memorable game from this year is. I guess I haven't really played a whole lot of games.
0: I mean, no Far, no Far Cry Two this year. No, I played a bit of Far Cry Two, but it wasn't really. No, but it, there wasn't no. You
2: guys, I gotta say, I gotta tell a funny story that I'm assuming a lot of you guys voted in the Kill Screen Game of the Year. No, I'm and not I sure. tried to, I tried to vote for Far Cry Two for like kind of my. <laughs>
3: oh, dude, why didn't you? Why, why? I thought,
2: I thought it was really clever. Like, and then I kind of thought that maybe you would too. Like, no, I thought no, I was being really clever. Good. and, like... This Dallin emails me and he's like, "Hey man, you have to vote for games from this year. Can you?" <laughs> it was really, really funny. <laughs> and I wrote him back and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm such an asshole. Like, I'm super sorry. You know, <laughs> give him the ban or whatever." Like, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> I, I
0: can. I actually. It's actually cool that guy of this magazine you can actually talk to him like to him oh, on a name yeah, basis. It is. Okay, how about I just throw out titles and you start talking? Sure. Uh, <laughs> Bayonetta started, the first game that came out oh, well, this yeah, I didn't play We're it.
2: talk about
4: that I
0: didn't play it. So
2: I didn't that play game, it. that was actually, I named that game as my game of the year at Gamer Melodico. I know. I just, about well, Gamer Melodico. Well, it's funny. I, you know, I was trying to pick a game of the year. I mean, that's a stupid, a fundamentally flawed concept, right? I mean, the, the best game of the year, whatever. That was um, the other topic. Yeah. The very so, okay, the sure. Game. I mean, yes, it's flawed. But I was trying to just say my favorite game of the year. Yeah, I played a lot of I played more games this year than I've ever played in a year. And I played so many. And I was thinking back to them. You know, I mean, Limbo was definitely a game that I valued for a lot of reasons. and It pushed me critically. Uh, I wrote about it in a way that I'd never written about a game. I really, really liked it. But when I thought about my favorite game, that was, Bayonetta was the one, just because it was unbelievable. I thought it was unbelievable. When I was playing it, it was literally, it was blowing my mind. I mean, like, the the visuals of that game, the way that it played, it was the most fun I've ever had playing. I don't don't even like those kinds of games. Those Devil May Cry, you know, juggle your dudes in the air, and, like, you have to be so fast. Like, I hate Ninja Gaiden, I suck at that game. I don't know the fact that i was having so much fun and feeling so good and empowered about it and then it was just so nuts it was this nut bar is like what is even going on and <laughs> every single scene in the game was crazy and man i mean i just i loved it i loved the imagination and the the balls i mean it was just the yeah i loved that game it was so fun to play and everything about it cracked me up and killed me uh, it was my favorite game
0: dennis i know you had
1: something to say about the character in, earlier in the year well, I found it interesting because I mean I did a whole piece for the Porterhouse examining because a lot of people were touting Bayonetta as camp, and so I wanted to look at it. So I pulled up Susan Sontag's notes on camp and looked at it and was like, this is very deliberate camp. Therefore, I wouldn't really use it as camp so much as structuralized camp, which isn't really the same. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have the same. Uh, Rocky Horror is camp just because nobody expected it to be quite like that. However, we know what we're expecting out of Bayonetta.
2: Uh, it's like That's deliberate cool. camp.
1: Yeah, you could say that
0: I love Quentin Tarantino's Death
1: Proof
2: as an example. Yeah, yeah definitely it's the whole like that camp. whole Grindhouse thing.
1: Yeah, it's more like an homage than actual camp itself. Right. So, what's
2: the sort of what's the practical? What's your take on that? I'm I'm trying to remember. I mean, I, I know I remember reading that post about Bayonetta. I oh. was really interested in the in how people reacted to Bayonetta, the character in the game.
0: Yeah, it was a real wide variety of reactions.
1: Yeah. I think one of my favorite was actually when Chris Dallin wrote about it.
3: Oh, yeah, I remember um, that piece, too. That was really great.
1: Yeah, and he had a commenter who said that uh, Bayonetta is sort of like the Lady Gaga of our generation.
0: That, w- that was another post, yeah, I remember that. What
1: was, was the that response? It,
0: it, was a, it was a whole post. Someone actually said that uh, Bayonetta could learn from Lady Gaga because he didn't think it went quite that extra mile.
4: Right. It, yeah, that was
1: that was Tana Higgins' post just the other week.
2: Because I think yeah. the complaint
1: is that it had the look of camp, but it didn't have the awareness.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was there was definitely a thing there with her and with the character and the way that they shot her and the way they showed her. It was so deliberately exploitative that there's, man, I mean, that's a dicey thing. The line between deliberately exploitative ironically and, like, just exploitative. And it worked for me personally. Like, I can definitely see how it it wouldn't work for everybody. There were enough other things about the game that I loved that it, you know, I was fine with it. But yeah, I mean, that. I think it, it just kind of it raised some really interesting questions about what is camp and what isn't. I mean, there were other games, too, that we could look at as camp. Just Cause 2, uh, Nels Anderson wrote a great piece about how that game is total camp. And I think he's right. That was a game I dismissed initially. In the I think game. it's,
0: but maybe it's because we see, we see more camp in that because it had less baggage than Bayonetta had to overcome. Well, it
2: didn't have the whole objectification of women and the male gaze and all that. Yeah,
0: stuff. that's what I think was the main hitching point of which side of the line it falls well, on. Well,
2: there was a lot of cultural insensitivity in Just Cause 2 that wasn't in Bayonetta. I mean, there was some, frankly, racist <laughs> stuff in that game. I mean, everybody has these ridiculously exaggerated accents and like... Yeah, it was a
3: bit funny. It was sort of, um... It was, again, a little bit borderline, though, as well, because you could kind of... You could see it as either playful homage to... um I guess 70s Bond films or something, you know, that kind of really cliched racial stereotypes, but again, and, whether and, you can get and, away with that these days, I don't know. Sort of, And the fact yeah. what you
0: could do, jumping out of an airplane to grab onto a helicopter to take down a boat before swinging onto yeah, a watchtower. Yeah, so, well,
3: I think that whole outrageousness factor of it was sort of... Crackdown 2 as well. And
2: the same thing with Bayonetta, you know, I mean, Bayonetta is the most outrageous game I've maybe ever seen, you know, in terms of what's going on in this game at any given moment in time. But similar, they get away with a lot because it's just so fundamentally outrageous.
0: Alright, the next game, which I know this is going to spawn a lot, is Mass Effect 2. Oh,
2: man. My game
4: of the year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, then you start off.
4: Alright, so, okay, about Mass Effect 2, response from the RPG community, from like the Bioware forums, from RPG websites, was that it wasn't as much of an RPG as the first game. They argue that because you know, it removed inven- inventory, it removed... Certain uh, you know stats, and it made, it put the a huge chunk of the game was, was actually skill based. You, know, you actually you had to play it like an FPS. If you didn't, you know you died. In the first game, you just relied on your stats. And this is like an ongoing argument in the whole RPG community. In that, if a character, I mean, if a game becomes too skill based, then it ceases to be an RPG because it puts the player has to be the one who's playing the game rather than the character. Whereas Mm -hmm. an RPG, in a traditional RPG, it's, you know, it's a character that's doing everything, not you. So like, for example, the original Fallout, you know, if if your character had three intelligence, then he or she wouldn't be able to solve lots of puzzles, even though you knew the, the solutions to it, your character couldn't do it because the character's too stupid. And that's what makes a good RPG. Whereas in, you know, Mass Effect Two, you don't have to. Your character doesn't really have to be good at stuff. You can be an adept or whatever. You know, who, who's not supposed to be good at combat, but then the player himself or herself is really good at playing the game, and therefore they can win. That makes it less of an RPG and more of a skill-based game. So, you know, it, it sparked that whole discussion about what is an RPG. And my, my personal view is that you know, what makes it an RPG is the fact that you can actually decide the narrative, the fate of the story, and I, I don't think that the RPG genre should be static, because a lot of people, when they think of RPGs, they think of stats, they think of inventory systems, and I think, well, with the current technology in games, you know, you don't have to have all these systems. The only reason that pen and paper RPGs had all these systems was because there was no other way to convey progress or convey your character's uh, Position, yeah, that he or she had yeah. on him.
0: It also comes out from their lineage of of being war game simulators before it moved on to D and D, and we've exactly. ne- it never shed that. I think you can do the skill based fighting, is if because each class allows for a person to approach each combat differently. If if I if I was told correctly, the very soul- That's correct the soldier can hide behind chest-high walls. And... Everybody,
2: dude, everybody hides behind chest-high
3: walls. Yeah, but yes, <laughs> he, whether you. you... was so a piece recently know. about how the architecture yeah. of, of like cover. I think it was a Rob Yeah, that was a neat piece. piece. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that was interesting. Anyway, carry on talking about Mass Effect and. Chest high walls. Uh, chest high uh, walls are the battlegrounds of the future. Yeah. <laughs> Here's, a warp Here's group apparently, war. like
2: if you yeah. go to an if, if I you go up, to an alien ship, there's gonna be some chest high walls there.
0: Or the <laughs> ceiling will fall down to provide chest high walls, or right, an insect right. will crawl over to be a chest high wall.
2: Or you'll yeah, see the switch yeah. and a chest high wall pop
0: up from the floor. See
2: I think we see, have to give it's funny, you know, we knock on him, but we have to give Yahtzee cross some credit I was about to say for the chest high walls thing, man, because <laughs> that was the funniest thing I've ever seen when he did that. <laughs>
0: I think we probably should move on this because this year was just huge.
2: But you know, really, if I could say something really quick about yeah. Mass Effect Two, go. Um, that 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 I won't link to it, but that was like probably the worst uh, hyperbole I've ever uttered on Gamer Melodica was that that was like maybe one of the best games I'd ever played or something. I was like in the heat of the moment playing that game. That game would have been my game of the year if I had been asked my game of the year in June, I mean, if I had been asked last year, if I had played that game, I totally would have said it if I hadn't seen all the other stuff I saw this year.
1: they're
2: both um, in I, I loved that game. I mean, I just, the writing, the, and just the confidence of it all. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, I just, yeah, I'm thankful for Bioware. I think that what they're doing is really cool. <laughs> I liked everything about it. I had no problem with the role playing, like compromises they made. I thought they made it better than the original in every way. And
1: I thought it was great. Well, for me, what they're doing with role playing games is they're actually allowing me to play a role rather than just roll a character. Well, while, while I can see numbers informing my role, they allow me to adopt a personality, which is what I did with Shepard,
2: and, that's and pretty even great more
3: story, so, honestly. Right? That's sort of know, age, a common you know? thing.
0: Well, no, they're getting better because it used to be that number that. Is this, would this be higher than that? Like in Baldur's Gate, the numbers influenced more my decision more than what personality I want to play, while it was the exact opposite in Dragon Age Origins.
2: Well, you know, they're getting better, but also I've been playing Planescape Torment for the first time, and that game has role-playing the likes of which I've never seen. I mean, you
0: that's can get, well, real, you,
2: real role-playing.
0: Well, they do something that no other RPG had done at the time, and I think hasn't done since, where conversation... If role playing in conversation gives you XP and no other, no other,
2: uh, well, I, uh, did that. Mass Effect does. It, I think when you, I mean, if you successfully yeah. negotiate your way out of something, uh-huh. XP for
1: it. I want to say I can't remember one of the other all-time favorite role where I actually adopted a role was uh, Vampire: The Masquerade Bloodlines, and I want to say you you could do something with XP there if you got certain. Conversation. Well, those were the, f- the g-
0: same guys who made, uh, who used to work at uh, Black Isle under BioWare.
2: We've come so far. In terms of technology, but we're still limited in terms of space. I mean, now that Bioware has spoken dialogue for everything, it's just much harder for them to do like what they did in Planescape Torment, because uh, oh. since that was all text, you could write a hundred branching options for any given situation. But we're getting—I think—we'll come back to that. And I—I I feel like Bioware knows what they're doing. I think they're going to come back to that. I'm—I'm mm. I'm really hopeful. I think Dragon Age Two is gonna be a really great game. The next,
0: uh, if we can move on to February, Bioshock Two came out.
2: <laughs> February, oh my God, we're gonna be here all night.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm gonna start speeding it up. <laughs> I, I think like... I'm gonna start.
2: Speeding it up. It's just that. <laughs> <But> sorry, <laughs> I, I, I blame myself.
1: But <laughs> I while I know critical reception was poor for Bioshock Two, I preferred the sequel to its predecessor.
0: I think the critical, uh, the critical reception was only poor because of Bioshock 1. On its own, I think we can look back and say, yes, this was great, especially with the Minerva's Den DLC.
3: Ah, and that's – I still haven't played well, it. Well, I, I I didn't even – I played like two hours of Bioshock 2 and then I just gave up. Like I, I just couldn't see the uh, attraction to it. Like I mean – but again – I didn't enjoy the first actually, Bioshock all that much. I mean, I enjoyed it more conceptually and the things that other people had to say about it more than I actually enjoyed the game itself.
0: I was about to say it actually get Bioshock two get it just has a steady increase in quality
4: after the first few hours. Yeah, it's, it's definitely. Bioshock. When I was playing it at the
2: beginning, I was bummed out. Yeah. Once you get your <laughs>
4: Copper's Drop, that's when it becomes a good game. Before then, it's yeah. like you don't really relate to the characters. There's no. Sympathetic characters to relate to, basically. I mean,
2: aside from. I kind of feel like uh, you're playing Bioshock. And, uh,
4: yeah, you feel like you're playing Bioshock again. But then, as soon
2: as you meet the jazz musician, it's like, whoa! Right.
4: This game has some humanity
2: in it, and I have a well, and By the end, it. I mean the closing chapter is like is brilliant. I mean, God, like I thought yeah. it, it closed out on a high note. Exactly. It's like it's got this momentum that
4: only picks up as soon as you do Popper's Drop. But before that, you know, it's all just. FPS-style, Bioshock-style gameplay. And I didn't really like Bioshock that much because I couldn't relate to any of the characters. I mean, it didn't really help that every single one of them kind of looked, you know, like plastic people. But, you know,
0: here <laughs> yeah. in Bioshock... I re- I, well, I, I'd, I'd say the exact opposite. I think it's more because of my personal towards philosophical themes that I supremely liked by the original Bioshock for that reason that I couldn't relate, but I could relate to the the philosophy and the themes that these were spouting and having play out in almost a physical manifestation. And, uh, and the same thing happened in Bioshock 2, where it's taking a look into not at objectivism, but collectivism, and that's what I'm so excited about, Infinite, because it's going to look at different themes within this physical realm.
2: Well, you know, what they're doing, too, is that Bioshock 2... I don't know, I thought that Bioshock 2 played much better than Bioshock 1. I've been replaying Bioshock 1 a little bit. And what Bioshock 2 brought to the table really was much better level design. And it wasn't so much in that it was the levels were more evocative, because there are some really great levels in Bioshock 1, but they were designed around gameplay in a way, because you had this sort of, actually like something you could skip if you didn't take the little sisters with you and go and try to collect Adam you didn't even see this part, but there were these siege sections, man, where you have to set up traps and you have to sort oh, of yeah. cordon off an area. And, man, I mean, it was fun. They were hard, and, like, you would get being wailed on by splicers, and the whole thing was really difficult. And it was really cool. It was engaging in a way that none of the battles in Bioshock 1 were. I thought the gameplay was yeah, much better in
4: the scene. It added, like, a variation to the gameplay, because, I mean, in the first game, it was always the same thing. You just went forward, you shot Until stuff the
2: stuff, and then it changed. Until the very, very end,
4: right. But here in, in Bioshock Two, it's like the game is basically split up into two different gameplay styles. So you've got this variation going, you've got the siege mode and then you've got you know the regular exploration stuff. So it, it's split between the two. And it, it, it kind of makes it interesting because you know you have something to look forward to. If you don't like the siege sections, then you don't have to do them, or you know, you can look forward to the exploration. Whereas there's various things that sort of keep you coming back because you want to see how the siege section in this next area is going to be. And, you know, with your new abilities, because in every every single new area, you'd get new abilities. you get maybe a machine area, you know, that gave you frost damage or something, or another one that allowed you to set up decoys. And you wanted to see how... These things would work in a seat situation that you couldn't really use them in an exploration type
2: situation. Which so, is cool because a lot of those mechanics in BioWare 1, I remember having a million plasmas that I never used, where I used a lot yeah. of stuff in BioWare 2. I mean, I was getting really creative because I wanted to really, there was like an achievement for not getting hit at all. I mean, it was cool. Like, I was really going for it. And I was impressed because yeah. I never go for that stuff. Like, But I was really into it in Bioshock 2. I mean, just to relate it to my current playthrough of Dragon Age, when I played Dragon Age Normal,
4: it was kind of straightforward. You know, I just killed everything. I didn't really think about what I was doing. But if I, right now I'm playing in Nightmare, there's this whole, I have this siege mentality because every single battle may mean the death of my party. So I have to actually set everything up, set up traps, set up skills, and make sure everything's correct and then watch it play out and, you know, Make changes as they they happen, kind of like in XCOM or one of the old turn-based games. So Bioshock 2, with the siege mode, it actually put you in this sort of mentality where you know it, it became more than just this tedious kill everything move forward thing. It, it became something where you had you knew okay this situation is going to be really hard. If I just play like that, I'll probably die. So I have to set this whole thing up, use all of my skills, and you know really excel as a player. And it goes to this. Article I read yesterday about how challenge was you know the reason oh, no, that was why. Chris,
2: people... Chris Planté's album. That, or, that, or, that article on the escapees. Yeah, right? yeah, that's a great. Yeah, article. It's on the Escapist. It's a great article, and I recommend everybody read it <laughs> because some people might
4: disagree. Uh, we had you know this whole argument on Twitter about how some people just the story, but I think that it's. You know this ludic sense where you're playing this game and you're you're mastering it. And Bioshock Two you had that in the seed sections. You had to master the game in order to beat those parts. Otherwise, you know, there's no good forward. Yeah, you had to be clever with all your skills, with whatever you picked so far, because you know you couldn't get all the skills at once. You had to choose between the different ones. So different bills had different ways of countering them.
0: Uh, I hate to interrupt, but uh, to move on, uh, yeah, Dante's we... Inferno came next, if anyone remembers that.
4: Nope, never played it. <laughs> it like... Yeah,
2: I didn't play it either.
4: All right. I do Michael it liked like, it. It seemed like such a, you know, a ripoff of God of War. and wasn't even trying, you know? It's like God of War, but edgier, so it has nipples, you know? But <laughs> God of War had nipples. <laughs> yeah, God, God of War, of War had... totally had nipples. God. <laughs> it was yeah, gross. So... Okay, first of all, they took this, you know, this great piece of literature, and they kind of butchered it because they weren't true to it. And then they said some stuff about how, oh, you know, this is literature we're making people interested in uh, in this whole thing. And I mean, on the one hand, I can understand that making all literature accessible to gamers, but on the other hand, it'd be like taking Lord of the Rings and, you know, replacing the whole storyline with something like Bulletstorm and
2: saying this is true to the story. And they do that? Have- <laughs> it so, was so, that was a pure marketing tech. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And you know there's yeah. going to be there's going to be some dude bro out there who bought the book, who thought it was based on the game and is going to be <laughs> supremely disappointed. <laughs> or hey, maybe
2: he read the book and he learned something. <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's the
0: that's the happy ending. <laughs> also also happened. in February came out a game that I I seem to have a very different opinion on Heavy Rain. Wow, Ooh.
3: that was actually this year, gosh. That was a I know, I know. That was and February. Another game <laughs> I've totally not played. I have, like, played no games this year at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is wrong with why you? Why did we invite you? Oh, you on the site, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Rain. No, yeah, uh, every, like everyone that. else had their monologue. I'll have mine this time, then. Yeah, yeah to me, uh, Heavy Rain, to me, as a whole, sort of fell apart if you just step back and there was a brilliant set of posts at uh, Game Critics that just pulled apart the story oh and held God, it together. Yeah. And yes, <laughs> as a whole, it falls apart. But the thing is, is that when you think about the game, you think about the individual moments. You think about the third trial. If you've played the game, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you will not have forgotten it. That third trial, the, th- the lizard trials, and. Even the final trial, with it's just it's just a stark contrast where ev- all the other trials are these long, protracted, single-chapter gameplay sequences. And the final trial is literally 10 seconds long, but it's just stark contrast to the rest, that it, it remains in your mind. You have the fight sequence, I hate to say it, but the fight sequence at the, uh, the junkyard is quite memorable, just because of how, how different it is. And losing your child in the park, and then just... Even, even just the quiet moment of talking to police afterwards and trying to remember these details, and suddenly you, it suddenly dawned on me, this is how real witnesses are. What time did you arrive at the park? Well, when the chapter starts up, it comes in and it gives you the time in the corner. And after all this stuff happened, what time did you arrive at the park? I, I guessed. I just pressed a random button. I couldn't even. And it, and it just brings you all these these little details, the insights. And it was a game of moments. It was just a pity those game- moments didn't connect in any reasonable well, you
2: know, way. It was. I think it was more than a pity. I, that was Daniel Weissenberger's piece that at game critics. That was like legendary. Oh my god! Like that. That was like that red letter media Star Wars thing. I mean, to the point where he <laughs> eviscerated that game and really. I don't know, man. I mean, I think, like, yeah, there were. Like, that moment, that was a great moment where they were like, when did you come in? How long were you there? And I couldn't remember because I probably wouldn't remember. And it was this great uh, moment. But, you know, I don't think it was – that game disappointed the hell out of me, partly because of how it controlled and partly because it just didn't hold I think together. the
0: controls are are what make it even more memorable because the, the I'm going to – for anyone who hasn't played it, spoilers, the third the third trial where you have to cut off your own finger – but not only that, you have to get ready and set everything up so you can cut off your own finger. And the thing is, in a movie, it, the way it was set up, it's like, eh. If in a book, it's like, okay, okay this is a little tense. But the fact is, is that it makes you sit there and it will not continue. You could put the knife or the saw or the scissors. It will not continue until you press that button. And that, it's not a full mechanic. It's not this full intensive Long sequence of of learned things. It is just a simple interactivity that hits you harder than I think yeah, anything else. Is, know, and, it had, and it had an like entire hard. game full of those moments, mm-hmm. and that's what I think they they were trying, they were doing, they were doing, they did it well, and it was they just they couldn't quite connect all these things, but they opened the door for it and they set up.
2: I think up, they, I mean, they a framework it, was, they set they up. They set up famous. a
0: framework for how to do this sort of thing. This sort of <clears> thing <throat> where a simple... It was done in Metal Gear Solid... The end of Metal Gear Solid 3. I was going to say. Yeah, of, Metal
2: Gear did the same thing a long time ago. But the thing yeah. is,
0: that's just... But that was that was like the opening. The one button pressed to, to pull the trigger, but the rest... The entire sequence of having to actually dig around in the trash, find a, find a, a saw, an axe or something, and having to sit there and do the breathing exercises to steady your hand to do it. That, for was, me, that was in, intense.
1: For me, that, those moments worked against it just because of how they treated Madison Page. How they introduced Madison Page and the threat of rape and violence against her and going through that and having that tense moment just made me nauseous. Madi- Which,
0: yeah, Madison sort of comes to the overall thing of why was she there in the first place, but when but when Ethan is in those moments, or when uh, Jaden is in those moments, that's when it really strikes
2: home. Yeah, you know, but I mean, looking at those individual moments out of the context of the game is fine, but really, I, I wanted more. I mean, I, I wanted a game that was coherent, where the characters made sense. I wanted a game where, yeah, where Madison wasn't even there, like where... They maybe made a female character that wasn't just a constant target of sexual violence, and they made a, they a father them. character who made sense. <laughs> well, they had uh, a I
0: mean, character like that. They didn't let you play her though.
2: Oh well, you know what I mean. And, yeah. I mean, but I mean, like, I wish the game had had. I mean, yeah, it did a lot of things really interesting, and I think that we'll see someone build on that framework just like they built on the framework of Metal Gear Three. But it still, it wasn't there for me. I mean, it was. Well, it that's was cool. and Heavy, a lot to talk about, heavy but,
0: Rain makes me excited for maybe this reason. A quick way to explain it is. The jump from Indigo Prophecy to Heavy Rain makes me super excited for the jump of Heavy Rain to their next project. Because Yeah, as, we'll
2: see. <laughs>
0: as disjointed as Heavy Rain was or the mechanics didn't quite work, the vast difference from their previous project makes it that if they make the same jump for the next one, it's going to be something special.
4: If I may say something, I would say that... Okay, the problem with Heavy Rain, I think, I haven't fully played it, but I mean, so far I'm experiencing it, is that... The person who, who, who wrote the game, David Cage, or whoever came up with these scenes, probably has this piece of paper, the sheet of paper that says "cool ideas for cool scenes," and <laughs> you know, he puts the. <laughs> yeah, i to see that piece of paper.
0: Most, I think, most games do that. He
4: puts a torture scene on there. He puts the uh, you know the the park scene where you lose a kid. And, you know, he puts the, uh, the scene where you chase your, your first skipper dies. dies. Yeah, he puts it on there and it says, okay, these are really cool scenes. They got to go into the story. They got into the game. Now let's find a way to fit them in. So that's the reason why I feel so disjointed. It's kind of like reading um, this book called Aragon, which, you know, it's about a kid and a dragon. And the, the whole book is a piece of crap. But there's this one <laughs> scene that's really cool where he's, he's riding on the dragon and the dragon's wings are damaged. So he has to get out of his seat and climb about his wings and sort of like navigate the dragon, like by pulling up the wing, you know? Like kind of like Didn't how
0: to train your dragon do that?
4: I guess I didn't I didn't see that movie. It's a really cool scene in the book, but then the rest of the book is gonna crap. So this it's got this one cool idea and I think that the writer, when he was coming up with this, like he maybe had a dream or maybe he had this cool idea, okay, this would be really cool to fit into a book. And all the parts leading up to that, the cool moments are really contrived, you know, they're contrived. So, Heavy Rain is the same way. It's got all these cool moments that someone put Mm -hmm. on paper, maybe even a gigantic whiteboard, and they try to fit them in all together rather than making an organic story. Like if you watch The Wire, you can tell that they didn't build the story around these cool moments. Instead, it's the whole story. It just carries itself. And then the cool moments happen as, you know,
3: natural stuff would happen. Yeah.
0: I think is we that... all would have liked if Heavy Rain was more like The Wire. But you take what
2: you Dude, get. Dude, I want literally everything in my life to be more like The Wire. But, <laughs> really? You know, what's interesting is in this like, is – Well, okay. I don't actually want my actual life to be like The Wire. Like, I don't I want to I... live on the streets of Baltimore and sell drugs. <laughs> but I want every artistic experience that I have to take cues from The Wire. What's interesting, Ian, what you mentioned about moments, is that you make me think of Call of Duty because Call of Duty, so Black Ops and Modern Warfare 2. I look at Modern Warfare 2 as this comical clusterfuck, right? Of just yeah. nothing made sense. I mean, it was these like crazy moments thrown together.
3: Oh, that's um, again. Where, where I
2: played some last yeah, year. Last oh year damn
3: right it! Then, so. <laughs> well, it's late um, You know it.
2: that. <laughs> That's close enough. I mean, you basically played it if you played Black Ops. So, so Black Ops was better. But what's interesting yeah. is that Black Ops was also a collection of fairly unrelated set pieces. But, but excused they found, itself. They found a good way to frame it by putting it through this guy who's being tortured and, you know, and remembering it through the years. So it makes sense that one minute you're whatever you're flying an SR-71 Blackbird and the next minute you're in Vietnam like killing people mm-hmm. of the night. And it works because he's like, Oh, he remembers this thing that happened now. So framing yeah. is actually I think really important narratively. And the way that Heavy Rain framed their narrative, I thought was really cool. I thought that by having it have these four characters going through the story separately, seeing it from different perspectives, having an unreliable character with I mean, I think we can spoil this game, right? If people are listening sure. to it, go know. for it. I'll um, put a I mean, but having me. an unreliable character, having, you know, things happen in that way, I thought was really neat. I mean it, it laid a lot of interesting narrative ground, but the fact that the game didn't work for me meant I didn't have a good time playing it.
3: Alright, moving on. I still <laughs> well, think we, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, got, no,
2: no, um, I, I, I mean, cool. Totally, cool. Like, I, that's fine.
3: We've, we've got like a hell of a lot of the rest of the year to get through. Did you want to just like brush over, like maybe list the games and then maybe we'll...
0: Uh, I was gonna, I
3: think I was going to have to split this into two podcasts anyway. Oh, that's sensible. Yeah. If,
0: unless you got to be somewhere soon.
3: Um, kind of. <laughs> I, I, my my housemate uh got red dead redemption uh, yesterday so like i'm i'm jonesing to play it really <laughs> play game I finally play a game
2: uh, from the okay
0: then i'll then i'll skip then i'll just do all of the games in march. I can't see any reason why I cut it there to be concluded in part three.